Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. I'm going to read from... uh... 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Please be seated. Thank you so much for the reading of the text. I thank you for the great singing. I love the reading of the Psalms in preparation for our call to worship. And this is a great passage as well. But we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The primary passage is 17 through 34. We will look at it in its entirety. So I look forward to this. We are often aware of this idea of mistaken identity when someone takes you for someone else. And that can be strongly problematic. We know this also concerning identity theft. And it happens when someone steals your personal information to commit fraud. The identity thief may use your information to apply for credit, file taxes, or get medical services. These acts can damage your credit status and cost you time and money to restore your good name. And those who have experienced such things know the frustration and the anxiety that we have when these things take place. Or using perhaps the wrong tool problem. A chisel is a lousy screwdriver. And a screwdriver is a lousy chisel, and neither are very good putty knives. There are appropriate tools for appropriate tasks. 
When we fail to read or work a passage properly, at best we are using the wrong tool for the right end. At worst, we are committing identity theft. We might think it is okay when someone is mistaken for someone else, but the outcome can be catastrophic and deeply troubling. And as I have looked at the scripture, there are several passages that have shaped our theology concerning God and man that have me wondering how could we get something so wrong for so long. And I realize that I have approached 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for many, many years from a certain vantage point or perspective, but then I realize if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, then everything is a nail. And that is perhaps true when we come to a passage like this. And this passage is one of those passages. What I'd like us to do is reassess how we approach 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and hopefully walk away with a heart and spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving and celebration for what the Lord's table actually does do. Why am I saying this? I don't know if this is true of you. It was true of me growing up in the Christian faith from the age of 17 onward. But I'm reading from an article which I think is reflective of a common thought or idea that exists concerning 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The author notes that this passage provides both comfort about how we can rest and be assured of our salvation and a warning of how important it is to walk in obedience. Here are four foundational principles that this particular author and perspective suggest concerning this passage. First, God, our faithful father, judges his children daily. I disagree with his presupposition. However, He believes that our faithful father is judging his people, us, on a daily basis. God is the faithful father in our behavior on earth. The things we do and even the things we think about and feel matter to him. Just like a child's behavior, thoughts, and feelings matter to a parent. And when he sees his children doing, saying, thinking, or feeling things he doesn't approve of, he judges. Number two, God is not distant but engaged, even knowing our thoughts and feelings. God is the ultimate faithful parent. He's not distant but is close by, so close that he always knows not only what you are doing but what you are thinking and feeling. Now, that theology, if taken from a wrong perspective or vantage point, should fill you with terror. He weighs those things and constantly evaluates whether you are heading in the right direction, and if you are not, he disciplines. So far, from my vantage point, I would say that his two conclusions are very, very negative. Thirdly, God's daily judgments can result in discipline, if not speaking of punishing someone in anger or wrath, but more of a loving father correcting his son or daughter. Some of you may be going through God's discipline right now. This discipline can take many forms, including gentle correction, such as a word of warning to us, either through his word, through prayer, or through other believers, the loss of blessings in this life. Instead of God blessing you, he has to spend time disciplining you. How many blessings in this life have we lost because of that? Number three, allowing us to suffer through the consequence of our actions. Some Christians are spending their lives in prison, reaping the consequences of sin, experiencing sickness and dying before our time. In this very chapter, just two verses earlier, he's referring to 1 Corinthians 11. That is the basis for his conclusions. Paul told the Corinthians who are partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner that they're experiencing sickness, weakness, and even death. Number five, demonic oppression. Christians cannot be possessed by Satan or demons because they have the Holy Spirit inside us, but we can be oppressed by them if God allows it. And then finally, the loss of rewards in heaven. 
Our behavior on earth matters to God. Those who walk in obedience will be rewarded for eternity. We're not talking about salvation here, for salvation is a free gift, not a reward. We're talking about blessings, praises, rights, and privileges we will have in the coming kingdom, such as ruling and reigning with Christ. And then finally, in this verse, we see God's assurance of our salvation. It says we are disciplined by God so that we will not be condemned with the world. And that's to assure us when we experience these bad things in our life. Now, he makes that based on 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, what's the big takeaway from this article or theology or vantage point? Well, based on the passage... The common understanding concludes God is watching you, and if you are not measuring up and doing enough, God sees this and he will discipline you, but don't worry, this is for your good. Now, that's a theology that I was raised in. That's a prevailing theology concerning this passage and a certain vantage point concerning the gospel. Now, how many of you, and think about this for a moment, how many of you live in a relationship where you are constantly being monitored? You're constantly being monitored either by your spouse your parent, or the workplace. You're always being assessed. How is that working out for you? Now, I would assume you are a nervous wreck and unhappy when faced with those relationships, and you want nothing but to be removed from that person or people, to be micromanaged, to always be assessed, to wonder if you are doing enough, if somehow you are measuring up. I believe that we have somehow read this passage wrong, and how could we have read it so wrong for so long? Is this what the passage is teaching us? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and you read Paul's intent for writing the letter, Paul writes in verses 10 and 11, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. We all want to agree. We all want to come here And we often describe ourselves as the island of misfit toys. We don't want to come to church and be judged by others. This is the one place where we don't have to measure up. We are all received equally in Christ. But Paul says in the Corinthian church, he wants them to agree. Why? Because there is conflict. There are quarrels that are taking place over certain themes and topics. He does not want division. So when you look at 1 Corinthians, there are these markers throughout. It's found in chapter 7, verse 1, verse 25, 8, 1, verse 4, chapter 12, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1, and then verse 12 when he says, Now concerning, there are certain topics that are dividing the family, and the Apostle Paul is writing the letter because those topics have been divisive. And he wants them as a church to agree. When you look at chapter 10, if you're in chapter 11 and you jump over to chapter 10... Chapter 10 ends with this idea of do we or do we not eat meat offered to the idol? And Paul makes this conclusion concerning these divisive topics. Verse 31 of chapter 10, notice what the apostle says. So, and you'll notice it's a a paragraph break within the larger thought. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That becomes our perspective, our theological grounding. Whatever I'm going to do, I do it. For the glory of God. He continues. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So the Apostle Paul realizes that the life he is living is lived for the glory of God. And in light of that, you defer. As it is possible, you defer. What then happens in chapter 11 are two areas where there is a problem. 
Notice in your Bible, chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, the problem inside the Corinthian church were the women wearing head coverings. In that culture, head coverings were a sign of submission. I have authority over me. And then in verses 17 through 34, as it related to the meal, I'll talk about this in a moment, preceding the actual celebration of the Lord's table, those who had means, the wealthy, were not deferring to those who were either enslaved or poor. And the Apostle Paul is really addressing people of means. And he begins to address that, and he's saying that the dominant idea in resolving the conflict is first and foremost, are what you are doing to the glory of God, and are you deferring? Are you being considerate of those who are less fortunate than you are? And he deals with these two very specific areas in chapter 11. And the whole book is dealing with tension. It's dealing with conflict. He's dealing with division. And Paul's conclusion is, go back to the gospel. Why are you here in the first place? It's for the glory of God. And the gospel is what levels the playing field, thus defer. But he deals with these two ideas in chapter 11. 11, 1 through 16 speaks to this idea of authority or submission. Now, although everyone struggles with this dynamic, the rich inside this context were struggling with this idea and sign of submission. Now, when you think about that, and it's not saying it's specifically within the text, but think about it. If a slave was coming to church, they, were, they had release time and they came to the gathering, or they were poor, they weren't thinking that they were over anyone. They knew where they were inside that culture, inside that society. But the richer people, the people of affluence, when they came, they were bucking against it. And remember what the gospel does. In the body of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor free. So we're all equal. But the Apostle Paul says, no, that, that although that is true, there is still this authority submission thing. And the Apostle Paul stresses that. And we shouldn't buck against it. The issue isn't, am I a slave, but rather to whom or to what am I a slave? So the problem as it existed in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, was primarily with the wealthy. And then when you get to 17 through 34, again, he is referring to the people of means needing to defer to those who have no resources. And, and we'll bring this out even more as we move through this text. But you have the enslaved, you have the enslaved or poor attending church. And, and what you have to do when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you have to go back to the first century. We think, well, they went to church, they gathered together, and I'll stress that in just a moment in the first paragraph. But we think, well, they went to this. Well, they didn't come to this, correct? They went to someone's house or they went to some location that was outside, outdoors. They didn't come to this, not in the first century, not when 1 Corinthians was written. So when we even take this text and place it in its historical context, it begins shaping how we view the passage and what it means. Think about it. Were the poor inviting people into their home? Well, perhaps, but the resources of the poor were very limited. Who would be inviting the church into their home? Those who had means, those who had resources. They would have a much larger space for the gathering to take place. And we'll note in just a moment, but when the Apostle Paul speaks of the meal, he's speaking of the meal that precedes the actual celebration of the table. Those two ideas were merged together. 
So they would sit down and share a meal. At the end of the meal, they would celebrate the elements. We don't do that now, do we? And the text isn't saying we should. The closest thing we could do to replicate what was happening in the first century church would be a church-wide potluck. We all go downstairs, have a big meal. After the meal, we celebrate the elements. That is the context, the historical context, in which that passage would be replicated in the 21st century church. We could equally do that in homes, but that's not how we right now gather. So the Apostle Paul says in that historical context, who were the people that would have the resources to gather together the church? It would be the people of means. It would not be the enslaved or the poor. And what would probably happen is that the people of means were bringing primarily the food and the drink. Their schedules, they had control of. But the enslaved and the poor, they were at the the whim or the authority of those above them. So it wasn't as if the enslaved or poor could leave at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon and go to the meeting, or even at 5 or 6. They had to wait until their work was done and they got released. So what could have happened is that the wealthy provided a meal, but the longer they waited, they started to eat the hors d'oeuvres, they started to snack, and they started to nibble, and soon enough, what happens to you when you're at a meal like that? You're stuffed before the, even, the thing even happens. But they were eating and drinking long before the poor or the enslaved even got there. And by the time the poor and enslaved got to the meal, how much food was left? Not much. How much drink was left? Not much. And those wealthy who were there and made the provision, and they made the provision for everyone, but just because of how it unfolded, they end up being gluttonous and drunk. They were not deferring. They were not waiting. That was undermining entirely the message of the gospel. What does the gospel do? It makes us all equal in Christ. We defer, especially inside of this historical context. So the primary scenario in which this passage speaks to is somewhat outside our own immediate application. We can stretch it, but that's not necessarily what this text is saying. It's very specific to this historical context. But when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, it has the caption, the Lord's Supper. And then when you look at that section, you'll notice that it's indented in verse 17. It's indented in verse 23. It's indented in verse 27. And then it is indented in verse 33. And I would argue based on the structure, and I think they got it right, based on the structure, and I think grammatically when you look at the first words of each of those indentations, it's telling you that the Apostle Paul is making another point, but it's all within one thought. So there really are four points to this study, to this thought. If you look at verses 17 through 22, the Apostle Paul begins with now, and he addresses the problem as it existed within the church. Then when you look at verses 23 through 26, he says, well, here is what this is all about, the gospel, the actual celebration of the Lord's table. It's not about the meal. The meal is a consequence. It's an add-on to the actual celebration. But the celebration is all about the gospel. And if you remember what this reminds us of, it calls us to community, to family, and to defer. 
Then the Apostle Paul hits verses 27 through 32, which is strongly problematic when we try to bring that into our context. But in that context, I'll explain what it meant, and I do think there is application to us today, but the penalty presented. This is where I think, and I ask myself the question, how could we get it so wrong for so long? And part of that is our failure to read Corinthians as a whole and then to understand the entirety of the Bible. But we and I were raised with this idea, not in the last 19 years here at Waukesha, but I was raised with the idea that if somehow you partook of the table with unconfessed sin, that God would cause you to be sick or weak and perhaps even kill you. Have we heard that thought before? Now that's coming out of that paragraph, that one paragraph. And how do we respond to that idea? And then finally, notice verses 33 and 34, which is the conclusion or summary statement. He says, so then, which is his summary statement, so then, my brothers and sisters in Christ, when you come together to eat, when you come together to that meal, which is preceding the actual celebration, defer, wait for one another. And if you're hungry and you're thirsty, what should you do? Take care of that before you even come so that when you come to the actual meal, you can defer and you don't act like a complete glutton or drunk. Doesn't that sound practical? In that historical context, it makes, obviously, from my vantage point, perfect sense. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Because when you come to the table and you become gluttonous and drunk, it has a consequence. It has a judgment attached to it. And then he notes here about the other things that will give directions when I come. So let's break down the passage. There's four moving parts. I'll try to do this uh, rather uh, quickly and tightly, but let's hope we can see it. The first thing the Apostle Paul does in verses 17 through 22 is state the problem. Notice what he says. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I'm I'm not applauding you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Man, I think church should be our happy hour. I think we should come here, we should benefit, we should enjoy, we should give hugs and handshakes, we should say, boy, man, you're doing great. How can I help? How can I serve? I think church ought to be one of the best moments of our week. Hey, it is for me. I thoroughly enjoy church. Notice what it then says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, and he, he uses the phrase, come together repeatedly, five times in the first paragraph, and then later on in verses 33 and 34. He's talking about this, the gathering, when you come together. And then throughout the passage, he uses the plural, you. So it's not you specific, but y'all as a gathered church. I hear that there are divisions among you. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's the problem. There's a situation within the church that is dividing them. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That would strongly suggest that the ones who are abusing this situation are unbelievers. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? 
Do you think so little of the gospel that you do this in the gathered community? And humiliate those who have nothing? Wouldn't it be terrible to go to church and walk away feeling beat down and humiliated? Come on now. That would be awful. That would be awful. Notice what he says. For in eating, verse 21, and then he says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The Apostle Paul says, whatever you might be doing at that preceding meal, it is not the Lord's table. It is not the gospel that you are either proclaiming or celebrating. It's something entirely different. So the first thing the Apostle Paul does is state the problem. When you look at the passage, and this is important, the passage really has two parts concerning the celebration of the table in that historical context. You had the meal preceding the actual table. It was all part of the same thing in that historical context, but he's really referencing how they addressed the meal preceding the table. You and I do not celebrate the Lord's table in the same way they did in the first century. We have no preceding meal. We simply celebrate the table. And we will be doing such today. So the first thing we need to note concerning the problem is that it's buried and embedded in a very historical context. First of all, it's the gathered church. We see this come together or gather together five times within this specific paragraph. He uses the plural you all. We've already noted how the gathering was probably in the homes of the wealthy, people of resource, free people. The second thing we see is that it is addressing a problem of favoritism or bias or partiality. Things were getting out of hand. They weren't deferring to those who were either enslaved or poor. Third thing, by not treating each other equally, regardless of status or ability to provide, the rich were mistreating the poor. The strong were abusing the weak. And all of this was done in the context of the meal preceding the Lord's table. And such treatment of others was undermining the impact and consequence of the gospel. And then as a consequence of this flagrant partiality and abuse towards the less fortunate, whatever else they might be doing at the meal, it was not the Lord's table. It was not the Lord's table. Now we come to verses 23 through 26. Notice what Paul says. We, we quote this verse often. It says, for I received from the Lord. So Paul is now going to correct the problem. The correction to our problems is always gospel-based. The correction is always, now let's look at Jesus. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What we need to do every time we celebrate the elements, every time we come to this symbolism and picture, is remember that we are preaching the gospel. We are visualizing the gospel. There are three things within this passage that I think are important to remember. The first is, remember the past. When you and I come to the Lord's table today, when we come to the table, let's remember the past. Why? Because it speaks of Calvary. 
This is tied to seed promise. Calvary is a culmination of God's promises. Calvary says Jesus is enough, both in this life and in the life which is to come. And in the celebration of these symbols, we are preaching the gospel. So if you are here for the very first time and you don't know Jesus as your Savior from sin and death, please understand that the elements before you are preaching the gospel, the body and blood of Jesus. The second thing that the table does, it speaks of communion. We are coming together as a church family, making public confession that we believe Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is our Savior from sin and death. And as a celebration of these elements, we are saying, hey, we're family. We're family. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We have that common confession. And remember the abuse that was taking place in the preceding meal. They were not deferring. They were undermining the consequence and impact of the gospel. And then the third thing we see when we come together is noted in verse 26. It says, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Do you know that Jesus Christ could come back today? Wouldn't it be awesome if in the celebration of the elements, when we began to pray the benediction, Jesus came. But that, that's what Paul says. He says, the meal, when you, when you do what you do over there, that's not this. This is what this says. It preaches Calvary. It preaches communion. It preaches coming. Let's not forget that. So when we come to the table, it's an act of celebration, gratitude, and thanksgiving. This isn't about me. It's about us. It's about him. Then we have verses 27 through 32. 27 through 32 has always proved to be somewhat problematic. Let's see if we can make some sense concerning it. 27, who, whoever therefore, in conclusion, based on the problem, now this presentation, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. It's not you yourself are unworthy. It's not you yourself have some hidden sin in your life that's unconfessed. It's if that's the way you are taking the meal prior to the actual table, that display is not suitable to what this speaks of. But if that's the way you are partaking of the potluck that precedes the table, that gluttonous action and drunkenness is not worthy. It's not a worthy way. It's not a worthy manner. It's not suitable to what the gospel is all about. He goes on, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. Is that how you are approaching this meal? Is that how you are treating other people? And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, this, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that mean? I'll explain that in just a moment. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died because of your gluttony, because of your drunkenness. You are not deferring. These uncontrolled behaviors are killing you. 
Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, if we have exercised self-control, if we see ourselves for who we are in light of the gospel, we would not be judged by others and the Lord. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. What does that mean? I'll explain it in a moment. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. We are different than the world. Don't bring that gluttonous activity. Don't bring that selfishness and partiality and drunkenness into the church. And then he concludes, so then, my brothers. What is the Apostle Paul speaking to? Well, first and foremost, the problem existed in the meal preceding the table. The idea that you could somehow in your own way be worthy of partaking is nuts. The only reason why you can partake is because he is worthy and he has imputed his worthiness to your account. So when you come, it isn't about you, it's about him. And thus we come to the table. But what about all this talk of judgment? Well, first, in verse 29, when it says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, if you are not paying attention to one another, you have a problem. Because the entire imperative of Scripture is based on the horizontal. It's based on the relationship that we have one with another and then we have with our outside world and community. The imperatives operate here. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, not the body in the bread. Now there is no body in the bread, but not the symbolism that the bread speaks to, but the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In verse 29, the body is the church. You can see this in chapter 10, verse 17, chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, etc. It says about the one body. And if we have disregard for that body, then we do the sins that are spoken of in this passage of gluttony and drunkenness, which are mentioned earlier in verses 21 and 22. And it's because of this we have the sickness, we have the weakness, we even have the death. And there is another element at play, which I will touch on. It requires a whole nother study. But there was in, the, in this transition period between an Old Testament and a New Testament where God was acting severely with those who would defile the gospel. You see it in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied and they were struck dead, that is not normative. Let's hope it's not. And this idea which I think is faulty to begin with, that you come with unconfessed sin and thus you're not worthy to partake. I think that whole premise is wrong. But the idea that if somehow you've done something wrong, God is going to strike you dead, I think that has theological problems and they're related to the gospel. So I really think that the, that the sickness and the weakness and the death are tied to the gluttony and drunkenness that have been stated throughout this entire text. And then this discipline, and I, I believe it is understandable in this way. So the first discipline that you are to exercise, which I believe is stated in verse 33, is this. If you have a problem with gluttony and drunkenness, where should you take care of that problem? At home. Exercise self-control. Exercise self-control. Don't overeat and don't overdrink. Don't do it. Now, let's just say you've been trying not to overeat and you've been trying not to overdrink. 
but you are struggling, you are failing. The next circle of discipline, the next circle of accountability are your friends. If I were to ask you, do you have any friends? You might say, well, I've got friends, but those friends might be acquaintances. And those acquaintances are such that you're not ready to receive from them admonition. Because I always say, don't tell people that they have a problem unless you are a, a real close friend. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Some people are hammers and all they see are nails. Those are not the people that should be approaching others with their problems. Pastor Giles will often point out things that are wrong with me, not character-wise. Like if you've been eating spinach dip, you want that person telling you, hey, but Pastor Giles could tell me the hard thing, and why? Because he's my friend. But I would expect him to do that. But it goes from self-control, and I believe that is sustainable by the text. If you've got a problem, verse 33 will say, take care of it at home. But if you start bringing it this way, hopefully there is a group of friends that you have that will point out to you your weaknesses. And they'll do it in the most loving, supportive, positive, profitable way possible. But what happens, and this is what's happening here in 1 Corinthians, what happens if it becomes public? What happens if we have that manifesting itself in the gathering? Then what happens? I mean, self-control has failed. Peer group has failed. Now what? When it gets to this level, it's not a good thing. This is the corporate discipline that takes place on those who violate the principle. And that's carried out by the elders of the church. When it becomes public and it escalates to the level of public then the elders are the ones who are stepping in. And that's true throughout. And I believe when it says then, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. And I believe the discipline of God, and this is again a larger study, but I believe God disciplines us. One of those ways is through the elders of a church. When the elders have to deal with it, it's, it's blasted through all the other barriers. When the elders have to deal with it, God is disciplining that person. And there are plenty of passages that deal with that specific idea. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, 1 Timothy 1, 20. So I believe when you talk about this passage, when the problems of the meal are not being addressed at that level, and if they were to continue, then Paul would have expected that the elders of that church would deal with it. And it's always to be restorative, but if it's not restorative, they are removing them. So then we get to this part, verses 33 through 34, and I believe that 33 and 34 give us the conclusion. So I've just gone through the three discipline patterns, and then now verses 33 and 34. So then, in conclusion, when you do gather for the meal that's preceding the table, wait for one another. The easiest answer to the question, the easiest solution to that problem it's just wait for one another. You're like, that's so easy. In that context, with the meal, wait. And by the way, this is probably primarily addressing the people of resource, the people of wealth, the host and hostess of the gathering. Wait. Wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, this is the word to the church. You know, if the only meal you're going to eat is a potluck, well, we need to talk. But if anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. Don't come to the meal starving. 
so that when you do come together, it won't be for judgment. Because if you start knocking down the barriers and violating principles and your peer group can't pull you back from the ledge, then potentially the elders have to step in and deal with it. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Paul's parting words. The Apostle Paul says that we, when we come together, let us defer. And that, again, I think that's a great principle. Philippians chapter 2 says, put the needs of others above your own. And that's where this idea of deferring is really taught, Philippians chapter 2. The primary intent of the text is to say the gospel has real ramifications. It has real consequence. It has real impact when we come together. And when we come together, we are celebrating the gospel. The gospel. So when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's two ways of approaching it. One way would fill you with anxiety and concern. If I were to ask you, do you have sin in your life? Do you have any unconfessed sin? If you were open, transparent, and honest, you would say, well, yeah. Are you dealing with it? And I think hopefully you would say, well, yeah. That's what they call the Christian life. But we're coming to the table because it communicates gospel. And gospel says that every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, has been answered for at the cross in Christ. And he has imputed to you his righteousness. And because of who he is and what he has done, we are now worthy to partake of the table. Now, that's not what this passage is teaching us. This passage is dealing with a real problem that Paul has addressed. But for you and me, when we move it forward 2,000 years, where we are right now in this context, we are proclaiming and celebrating the gospel until he comes. And it ought to fill our hearts with joy and celebration. This isn't one more thing that we do in the context of a church. This is our happy hour. And when we celebrate, when we celebrate the table, we are giving thanks to God for what he has done in and through his son. And the table invites us to remember the past. Do you remember when you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior from sin and death? Do you remember the burden that was lifted from your shoulders and the joy that you felt in your heart? Enjoy the present. We're with family. This is family. And then let us Let us look forward to the future. Jesus is coming. And every time we partake of the table, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to partake of these elements. We celebrate the gospel. I pray, Father, that we have heard a proper handling of this passage, that where our thinking is wrong, correction would have happened. And, Father, we we begin to see not just this historical context in which it took place, but at this present moment and how we are to celebrate the gospel and the implications, the impact, the consequence of that gospel. Thank you, Father, for loving us. May we wallow in the release, liberty, and life that we have in Christ Jesus. For it's in his name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.